0: Last time on HI101, we talked about the Republican period of Chinese history, from the supposed unification of China by the Kuomintang in 1927, to its collapse in 1949. Today we'll begin with some overlap from that last episode, this time from the communist perspective, then continue beyond as the New People's Republic of China attempts to find its feet. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Gary Hallman. Back again. Back again, finally. It's taken so long. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point about how, how much work or how much time this to- hey, topic has taken. Third
1: time's a charm.
0: Yeah, here, here we go. I'm, I'm really excited to be back. Um, last time we talked about the uh, the fall of the uh, Republican system in, in China. Well, the, the start and the end of it, basically, from uh, from the warlord era through to um, the, the communist rebellion. But we mostly stuck with the Republican standpoint. And today I want to circle back around and talk about things from the communist standpoint because remember when we started talking about this topic this was what we originally intended to talk about. Right, right. Was the communist revolution and and early communist China and it's taken us two episodes to really set the stage with any degree of competency or relevancy to get to this point where it well, makes any sense. It's amazing how much
1: history that you need to go back through just to understand and and just to bring some semblance of context to yeah where we go from here on out yeah absolutely like how do you address part 3
0: Without even briefly covering what we've covered up to this point, I know I, I hope it goes well. I, I I prepared a long time for this one. so i'm I'm a tiny bit nervous and mostly just very excited to uh, to finally get to the end of this uh, saga, I suppose, because it's been going a while. And it's a really interesting story. I've very much enjoyed doing this one though. So as much as I might have complained about it a little bit, uh, i'm I'm really glad we had a chance to do this topic. So uh, without further ado, let's jump right in. Okay. Um, I actually want to roll back a little bit from where we were last time to talk about some of the civil war from the communist side of things. I promised to do that last time. Uh, I mentioned that I was kind of giving the communists a little bit of a pass so that we could focus on Chiang Kai-shek, the fall of the Republican system within China, uh, kind of keep a, a consistent narrative there. So I think the easiest way to frame today's discussion is basically to center the entire thing on Mao Zedong specifically, the entire way through. And that's not to say that he's the only important person in this story, or that even that he's the main important person necessarily, but that using his life as a framework is a really good way to understand uh, both the Chinese Civil War and the early communist China. So in the interest of just keeping this halfway manageable that's uh that's the general plan for sounds like a good plan and for a lot of this mao despite the reality behind the scenes is going to come across as the key figure he is the most important man in china in a lot of ways and some of that is propaganda really well done some of it is a little bit of reality but um yeah we'll we'll get to some more of the specifics as we go okay so let's start off with exactly uh, or with a little bit on how mao ended up being Chairman Mao how the guy became who, the great helmsman. Yeah, the, the guy that we know as Mao and we think of Mao who is that guy? He was born in 1893. He's actually um, relatively old for a lot of this, uh, this story um, so he's born, uh, while China is still an imperial system and he's going to live through a lot of the turmoil that we talked about in part one and two and be an active participant in a lot of it. So he's born December 26th, 1893 to, uh, the self, the self-made farmer in Hunan province. So it's kind of Southern China. It's a landlocked province. It's fairly large. And his father had been born like dirt poor peasants. And had kind of managed to work his way up in the community until he was fairly well off. But this story of being the son of a peasant is going to be very much a part, a part of Mao's uh, personal narrative for the rest of his life. Because it looks a lot better yeah, for, than for
1: obvious reasons. wealthy
0: local businessmen. Yeah. <laughs> As a child, Mao was really well read. But he actually really disliked the Chinese classics. He hated Confucianism. Thought it was a load of garbage, basically. Really preferred... I hesitate to call it fantasy novels but like he really liked the you know the, the epic of the three kingdoms and stuff like that he he very much enjoyed like these these uh, sweeping pseudo historical pseudo fictional uh, accounts of chinese history over any sort of practical uh, or philosophical uh, reading. He also really liked biographies of great men. Uh, he was a big admirer of some people you would expect, like for example Napoleon, uh, okay. as well as some people you might not expect, such as George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I that's interesting because I, I kind of wonder, based on the the time periods, like how relevant that
0: would have seemed to like their histories versus Chinese day to day life. I mean, you you have to consider them in the context of that china that china in transition but also that china in contact with the west so somebody like george washington for example you're looking at uh, a man who who brought his nation to greatness through rebellion against great britain right which is the kind of thing that would really appeal to somebody yes gotcha it, it would really appeal to somebody in mao's uh, situation right the views of like a really young mao are also very much shaped by a number of events that we've already covered in in great detail such as animosity towards the uh, the imperial family for basically conceding all of this power to the West uh, and allowing Western influence to enter this nation that he really viewed through that lens of the like romance of the Three Kingdoms, right? Like that classical like great central power China, um, right? Which again is is very romanticized, but that's that's how he saw China as as it should be he participated at least in sort of a peripheral way in the Xinhai rebellion of 1911. That's that sort of decentralized one that ends up ultimately overthrowing uh, Emperor Puyi and eventually leading to the uh, foundation of the Republic. Now, the way he saw it he was fighting in a much more local uh, uh conflict overthrowing corrupt politicians but he was fighting on the side of republican forces if you kind of take a more macro standpoint so was
1: he like actively involved in active combat at he this was point? like
0: 18 he wasn't the most willing foot soldier but he did the work a little right. bit there's accounts of him uh trying to get out of duty for uh not having waterproof shoes for example gotcha. like he, he's not necessarily the most willing but as he saw sort of the corruption that, that these people he's fighting against, uh, he, he became more and more of a, you know, kind of a true believer he was like i said earlier a voracious reader but at this point in his life he's going to start really getting into the classics of like western liberalism so we're talking about your uh rousseau you're talking about your adam smith you're talking about like all of these thinkers that are are, uh highlighting uh individualism and uh you know the the social contract and um uh, market forces things like that and he's getting like a really broad overview of of classical liberalism, which is going to have a lot of an effect on him. But also, as he keeps going, he's going to get an exposure to uh, Marxism. He's going to get an exposure to uh, anarcho-communism. He's going to get exposure to, uh, after it takes place, the Bolshevik revolution and sort of Leninist thought. And He's going to be kind of just vacuuming up all of these ideas and sort of rolling them over in his head as he continues to be in contact with revolutionary forces. In kind of his like day to day, he sort of enters academia-ish. Um, he bounces around a lot through different careers and will end up kind of in a in a, a an academic role. But he's no, never really going to work as a as a teacher or a researcher so much as um, very soon he's going to be shunted out into revolutionary roles. Okay. He protested in the May Fourth Movement. Remember, that was the one where uh, citizens kind of rose up against the new Republican government for collaborating with, uh, in the in the in the wake of um, the Treaty of Versailles seeing the, the government as kind of complicit in rolling over and allowing Japanese uh, control over formerly German holdings in the country, uh, seeing it as kind of like a concession and not approving of that. He was actually an organizer in that protest. And that's where he kind of really takes a a hard turn towards at least some sort of collectivism. His views are still pretty eclectic at that point in time. But by 1921, he's a founding member of the Changsha branch of the Communist Party of China. Uh, Changsha being the the capital of Hunan Province. Okay. So the, it's a pretty high role actually in the in the nascent Communist Party, and he's not necessarily dogmatically Bolshevik at this point in time in his views, but. Remember, we talked about the international, or the Comintern, sorry, that was giving resources to new communists in various parts of the world. He saw those resources being very valuable and enough to at least work as kind of seed money to try and get some sort of uh, anti-Republican movement started. Because by this time, he's decided that the Republican government is not the way forward for China. It's seen as just kind of, this is if nothing else, it means to an end. Yeah. It's, it's, he sees it as basically another imperial system under a new name. Basically there's still these concessions to the West and he's seeing that as the source of China's troubles to a fairly large extent.
1: So do you think somebody, do you think they would have really viewed Russia as the West in the same way? That is a complicated question, Gary. Yeah. Um, I just, it's curious because, you know, looking through the lens of, Today's lens, like we yeah. wouldn't consider Russia a Western.
0: Well, I, I think even today, but but especially at that point in time, the 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 answer to that question is it depends on what we're talking about. Russia's always kind of straddled that line. You have czars going back, uh, you know, Peter the Great, for example, who are really intro interested in chasing a very European version right. of Russia, trying to bring European values and even social mores into. The Russian culture, but at the same time, you have these same czars sending envoys to kowtow in front of the uh, the Chinese emperor, understanding uh, the amount of power that the the Chinese emperor wields in that area. So it's it, it's it's always kind of straddled that line, and I think once the uh, the Bolshevik Revolution takes place, he sees that if nothing else, as a rejection of Russian or of, of Western values or of classical liberal. Western values to an extent that they are more of an ally or more of a potential ally than Great Britain or Germany or whoever else you want to point to in the right. West, United States, et cetera. Okay. It's a tough one though. Um, we're going to talk a bunch about communism today. I, I, There's a couple of spots here where my notes are very sparse and I'm just ex- expecting to talk for a long time because I have no idea how our discussion is going to go. But yeah, feel free as always to chime in anytime because it's complicated stuff and i will do my best on it but it is complicated yeah. so anyways the biggest difference that uh, mao's ideology holds when compared to classical marxist leninist theory is something that's actually a lot more common with like anarcho-communist thinkers and that's and here we go with a the theory on, on on communism it's this idea that of of who exactly the proletariat is so remember in a in a in a standard classic Marxist model, the way that the communist revolution works is that the the proletariat, which is basically exactly the working class, which is a very small class of people, realize that they're being economically exploited by the bourgeoisie, those who own the means of production, through the undervaluing of their labor that they're putting labor into the system that they're not being fairly compensated for. And that once they realize that they're being exploited, they're going to rise up, overthrow the bourgeoisie, and put into place a more collectivist economic system. And the way that that begins is with what's known as the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is a supposed to be a fairly short amount of time where the working class, specifically the workers, urban workers, are going to run the uh, country. Under the current political system, using a workers' party that is going to sort of mandate a transition into a collectivist economy. Okay. With me so far? Yep. If at any point you're not, please let me know, because if you're not, then other people will slip too. No, Uh, it makes sense. Good stuff. A theory that comes from anarcho-communism is that we're thinking too small when it comes to who the working class is because it shouldn't just be workers and it shouldn't just be about specifically that one piece of the economy. Anybody who's being exploited by the current social and economic system can be considered part of the proletariat because by being exploited, they have the potential to realize their own revolutionary uh, ability and rise up against the current system. And so that includes peasants. Marx basically wrote them off as being, at best, too uneducated, and at worst, too entrenched in the current system, to be valuable in, in a revolutionary he can uh, them context. As like the mob. Yeah, a little bit. Like they're not going to be able to understand why they even need to rise up, and so they're just going to benefit from the system so long as you exclude them. Yes. Well, but but also the, the peasantry can be part of the bourgeoisie because you have um the petty bourgeoisie which is like people who economically wouldn't necessarily be considered terribly well off but might own a couple of acres of land and they're right. going to see the coming revolution as they're coming to take away my family plot of land and they're going to actually stand in opposition to the workers revolution so either they don't know what they're doing and they don't know what's best for them or they're actually going to be actively opposed to the communist revolution anarcho communists tended to believe and and this goes back to thinkers like Kropotkin or uh, Bakunin, who um, were actually fairly opposed to Marxism. Mar- Marx isn't the beginning and end of communist theory, it gets really complicated in there. Yeah. Not even the start. Um, they, they tended to see the the peasantry as, at best, a tabula rasa, like a blank slate politically that can be educated into understanding why communism would benefit them. And that even those who own property, let them own their property. Uh, their property and watch as you know collective agriculture begins to like show its overall societal benefits and then they'll realize and like willingly join into this collectivism right. was sort of the thought there mao came down on the side of the peasantry have revolutionary potential he believed that there was a lot of potential there and that's actually an idea that's really important both to russian communism and chinese communism because you don't have a working class you have a peasant class. Peasantry in, in in China at this point in time exceeds ninety percent of the population.
1: Well, I guess you can kind of say that this kind of leads into you know that that classical saying of like the worker, peasant, soldier that like different classes of people could be anything,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. One of the uh, one of the big events in Mao's life uh, that that cemented this belief for him was that he. You remember the purge during the Northern Expedition? Yes. Mao wasn't there for that. He had left to do some recruiting. So he wasn't actually physically there. He avoided massacre at that point in time. In the wake of that northern expedition, in the sort of political turmoil, there were small groups of peasantry who basically banded together and spontaneously created small collectives. Now, whether they're, you know, hailing Marx while they're doing all of this stuff is, you know, completely irrelevant. What he saw was a, a, a measure of people in crisis helping one another in a in a relatively collective manner and through necessity kind of thing. Essentially, yes. But he saw that and went, okay. Well, obviously these people aren't incapable of it because I saw it happen. They were helping each other. That's how this works. They only revert back when the Kuomintang rolls back into town and starts exerting uh, political force. So yeah, being being a part of that re- recruiting uh, effort was was really important to that development of idea, uh, of ideas. And this kind of period in the late 20s, early 30s is sort of the most formative for Mao, uh, politically speaking. He's going to develop the vast majority of his ideas in this era. After the purge at the, at the Northern Expedition and, and witnessing these events, Mao turned to the other leaders of the Communist Party and basically said, we should withdraw our support of the, the Kuomintang right now. They're never going to support us. They've just demonstrated that. And we need to build a new army based on the peasants. And he was basically laughed out of the room. In fact, he um, was basically told, uh, he he had some um, responsibilities withdrawn from him because of all of this. But then the Kuomintang cut them off completely and they were forced to... uh, Rethink everything. Well, they they founded the Red Army at that point, uh, which is more properly known as the Worker and Peasants Army. Here we are. Yeah. So he's right. And, you know, they never really necessarily admitted that he was right about that. But they did end up making him Commander-in-Chief of the Red Army as sort of a, all right, okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, Yeah. That being said, he was given exactly one battle to prove himself as commander, and he lost that battle. There's actually a lot of discussion as to whether or not he was set up for failure, whether he deliberately failed in this battle, whether it was just bad luck. There's There's... We don't need to spend time on this but it's a whole thing just so you're aware okay um as soon as the as soon as he lost that battle he's basically expelled from the central council of the communist party it's a whole deal in 1928 so he went fine i'm not working for you guys and he goes off to this town uh called uh jingang where he founds an independent collective under his own interpretation of marxist ideals starts this agricultural collective starts raising an army out of the peasantry, teaching them, uh, revolutionary ideals and manages to raise an army of 1800 soldiers Holy on his own, which, so how big is the red army at this point? Oh, thousands and thousands. Yeah. It's much better, bigger than this, but like, also they need every guy that they can get, you know, it's, it's not, it's not big enough that we can just discount 1800 people. We need those 1800. The, the number of the, the red army fluctuates a bunch around here because they keep building up you know, a couple tens of thousands and getting demolished and build back up and then demolished again. But I, I I would have to look back. I'll put the actual number in the, in the notes. I would guess that the red army was somewhere around 25 to 50,000 at this point in time. Anyways, there's sort of this fraught relationship over the next couple of years between Mao and the rest of the communist party, because the Soviets don't, just want to help out financially. They also want to influence politically, right? That's the whole point of the Comintern. They want a very specific idea of Marxism-Leninism pushed on these people. They want an international version of the Russian system established. We talked about it a bit the last time, but one of the ultimate goals of the Comintern is to have communism, uh, what's known as international communism. This idea that the nation states are essentially abolished once it's been established well enough. And there's this fear that, uh, on Mao's part, that these Soviet operatives within the Chinese Communist Party are actually working to undermine the national sovereignty of China through ideological and material means. Okay. And he's not wrong. No, no, absolutely not. That's absolutely what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. But it leads to some significant tensions between him and leadership, who was just going, what's your problem? Like, these people are helping us out. Like, why are you so suspicious? What other choice do we have at this point? Exactly. Generally, leadership saw him as a massive liability. They just, he, he seemed like a complete loose cannon. They didn't really want to deal with him. And they kept shunting him off to little spots here and there. Just keep him out of their hair. By 1930, he's given the title of chairman of the council of people's commissars, which sounds really impressive. It does. But what it means is that all of his leadership roles in the red army have been completely taken away. It's a purely political posting. He no longer has any active troops under him. This is a, we're worried about you. You seem dangerous move. This is actually a very ca- a classic, like Chinese political move where it's like dealing with your enemies. Give via, them a promotion. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, make it look good so they can't complain about it. You just got a promotion. What's the issue? But happens to be on the other side of the country. Yeah, it's also very Roman, by the way. They've done yes. lots. Um, but yeah, it's 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 classic. Just get him out of the way. Just leave him alone. This whole time Mao is advocating for guerrilla warfare hit and fade operations we don't have the guys to hit them you know dead on any of that stuff meanwhile the other leaders are going no we have to uh be seen as a legitimate force and yeah 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 legitimate forces don't use guerrilla warfare that's not how you get taken seriously on an international level and again Mao's just right here which is how you get into the situation in the in 1934, where you're in the middle of the encirclement campaigns. Remember we talked about that. There's the um, the Jiangxi Soviet State in southern China that Chiang Kai-shek is just trying to defeat at all costs, despite the fact that the Japanese have founded an entire new country in his northeast. Yeah. These encirclement campaigns. These other leaders are sending troops out to meet them head on, and they're getting demolished. Meanwhile, Mao, with what little indirect uh, influence he has is getting people to fight indirectly and it's actually fairly successful until you get to the 5th encirclement campaign where chen ka shek is no longer just overextending himself into the south and getting beaten back again he starts uh setting those blockhouses remember we talked about You're, like slowly right, right, right. slowly Canadian moving post, in just yeah. tightening the net yeah And Mao realizes that he has to take his people out of that area; that they're going to get killed. And so he does. He gets he gets as many people out as he can. And this is the Long March that we talked about. A a listener actually wrote in. I gave a a, just a terrible number on the Long March last time. I think I said somewhere around 3,000 kilometers long. Um, That's that's I I don't know where I got that from because that number is completely incorrect. The numbers, the official numbers, range anywhere from about 6,000 kilometers to. Uh, the official accounts being like upwards of 12,000, like 12,500 kilometers. That's a long way. Most of the estimates I've seen are six to 8,000 kilometers. So again, no idea where I got 3,000, but that was wrong. It's a long time. It's several years of marches. A lot of people died. That being said, it's very much seen as the only thing that saves the Communist Party in China. It's going to get over mythologized to a ridiculous extent over the next several decades. And I kind of avoided it last time, and I'm going to avoid it again this time because I don't really want to spend a whole bunch of time getting into, like, which parts of the Long March are real and which ones are not. It doesn't really matter. Um, What's important to know is that, you know, within a decade or two, the the story of the Long March that's being told is essentially one of Mao single-handedly bringing all of this about himself any heroic deed that happens on the Long March is uh, Mao's doing, and any tragedy that occurs on the Long March is that villainous Chiang Kai-shek, and it's despite the best efforts of Mao, and you know, it's, it's all very uh, personality-centric. Good guy versus bad guy, mm-hmm. black and white. Yeah, Mao very much t- takes on this mythological uh, persona in this time period, and in 1935, during the march, actually, while they're isolated, the communists take a popular vote uh, and elect Mao chairman of the Politburo. Basically he's back in the driver's seat again of the Communist Party by 1935. Just because of and, and I mean I'm not I'm not trying to say that Mao didn't make a brilliant move in taking Long March. It was the right move. He saved those people's lives 100 percent for sure. Tactically speaking it was the right thing to do. It's just that like you also get stuff of like him carrying people on his back and you know that sort of stuff that's really not relevant to the story. He was at the head of the line and the rear guard. Yeah, basically. He, he does prove himself as a, an effective um, military leader during the Long March, though. That being said, while I'm just glowing the guy right up, um, let's, let's bring it back down again. Uh, his wife is actually injured by shrapnel during the Long March, and she's sent off to Moscow for medical attention because it's the best help she can get. Um, while she's gone, Mao divorces her. and. Okay. She doesn't die, by the way, just gone for medical attention and marries an actress, uh, Jiang Qing, who's going to be relevant much, much later. So I, I bring it up mainly because she's going to come back into play she's later. She's
1: entering the story.
0: Yeah, but she's, she's an actress. She's, uh, she has revolutionary, uh, sympathies, but yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a little bit like, man, what are you doing, bud? Like that's his his previous wife had been like a died in the wool, like freedom fighter, guerrilla revolutionary for the cause. Yeah. And he kind of just tossed her aside at the first opportunity. So anyway, his his personal life aside, when you get to the point of the story that we talked about last time, where the communists are basically offering an olive branch to the Republicans saying, let us fight with you against the Japanese. And Chiang Kai-shek had to be kidnapped uh, to be convinced to do all of this. Mao is the one, he is the person offering the military alliance. It was his idea to offer that to the Republicans, seeing uh, Japan as being the far bigger threat and also seeing the danger of the Republicans uh, to the communists. Okay. It was a win-win move for him. And everything that we talked about in the war, about the, the, the communists going off and basically doing their own thing, guerrilla warfare against the Japanese with or without the, the say-so from the Republican commanders, Mao as well. That's all textbook Mao. We're going to hit and fade. We're going to do it hard and we're going to do it fast, but we can't let them catch us. Mao is a true revolutionary. Like he's all about the theory and he is going to be up there on the barricades. That is where he lives. And that is a good thing for this point in the story. If you sympathize with the communist cause where Mao is going to start falling apart later is in the actual day to day governance. And I don't mean to suggest that every leader needs to be every single thing to everyone. That's not true. However, I think where Mao really falls apart is not recognizing his own strengths and weaknesses in terms of his place within the revolution. Because his success in this era and coming up against the uh, in, in the Civil War against the the Republicans he seems to take that level of success and that level of adulation to mean that he's unstoppable. Right. It's not a. It's not an uncommon story, but it is going to be Mao's as well. Mao spends most of the war against, like, most of the Second World War, basically developing political theory and preparing for the civil war against the Republicans that he knows is coming.
1: Yeah, like a, a Everybody knows that this is going to happen at this point,
0: mm-hmm. okay. He's receiving support from Stalin uh, at this point fairly directly. Stalin actually saw uh, the communist revolution in China as being a little bit of a pet project almost. The geopolitical implications are important as well, but like he had a certain fondness for it to a certain extent. That being said, he was willing to use the Chinese communists um to the Soviet Union's benefit. Well, we had talked about last time those, you know, deep water ports that they really wanted back. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that if Japan's in the way. Yeah, exactly. But like, to the extent that initially, uh, Stalin was cautioning Mao, like, maybe you guys should hold off a little bit after the war. Maybe don't get right back to the fighting. Maybe that's not the best idea. Until... The Kuomintang made it very clear to the Soviets that they weren't willing to recognize an independent Mongolia at the end of the war, because an independent Mongolia, which, by the way, had gone through its own communist revolution during the Russian one, there were uh, basically red Russian operatives uh, uh, causing revolt there as well. Basically, by recognizing independence of Mongolia, Kuomintang leadership would be tacitly admitting that Mongolia was owned by the Soviet government. Okay. Just for like a a brief refresher, like when we're talking about the USSR, the way that it's formulated politically is kind of confusing in terms of it's made up of of a bunch of, of tacitly independent states that are all run by the same political party that's housed in Russia. So that You know, they're not, they're a block, but they're not, and yeah, it it, it gets a little bit messy. So yeah, an independent Mongolia is just a a Soviet Mongolia. And of course, the Kuomintang wasn't interested in that necessarily. Right. And so as soon as the Kuomintang says no, Stalin goes, actually, you know what? We're just going to hold some of those Japanese tanks in Manchuria if you guys want to pop over there real quick and claim them uh, and then get back to work against the Kuomintang. That would be great if he could just... Kind of circle back around, look after that.
1: So, was there Soviet aid as well, or they had basically just captured all of this Japanese war materials and just said, go ham?
0: More the latter. I think, as much as possible, the Soviet Union was not looking to open a new war in Asia exactly yeah. at the very end of World War II. Right. They were a little tapped. Well, especially, you
1: know, with things still being tenuous against the other leaders of the alliance sure
0: yeah i mean everyone remember at the, at the end of world war ii everyone's expecting the next conflict to be between the soviet union and the west like very very much so like it, it is almost a given great britain and france and the united states all get together and basically go so what are we doing about uh the soviet union when we finish this again like what's the war plan basically Military technology at the end of World War Two, at least uh, uh, allied military technology starts being developed, basically going, okay. well, the next war is going to be fought in eastern Germany and in Poland between. The forces of Europe and the forces of the Soviet Union. So, how are we going to define? De- you know, how are we going to develop our our airplanes to work in that terrain? How are our guns going to be dev- designed to work in that sort of climate? How is our our uh, camouflage going to look for that area? Like, there, that is the the firm expectation of these leaders. Obviously, in retrospe- retrospect, we know that's not how it goes, but that's the expectation in 1945. So no, the last thing that Stalin wants on his plate is uh, opening a front in uh, China, especially when the Kuomintang, remember, is being financially supported by the United States. Right. They want to see democracy in China. And we don't want to give the United States, who, by the way, just demonstrated their nuclear capabilities in Japan, we don't want them involved with our little conflict in China just because they have personal financial interests. So, no, we're going to let Mao do that fighting. Thank you very much. Okay. Is that all track? On track. Good. Let's take a little bit of a pause there in terms of our series of events, because that brings us to pretty much where we ended last time. Obviously, uh, there's the four-year conflict between uh, the Republican and Communist forces. The Communists start gaining momentum fairly early on and basically keep it through the entire Civil War until the uh, Republican government is basically exiled on the island of Formosa, modern-day Taiwan, and the communist uh, regime in China is declared on October 1st of 1949, shortly after Chiang Kai-shek declares the, um, you know, declares the Republic of China uh, in Taiwan. And the two of them kind of just hate each other across the channel for the next 20 or 30 years.
1: So what's stopping from
0: China from, like, the communists just from going over? That's a great question. Initially, not a whole lot. Shortly afterwards, um, a, a massive amount. The Americans. How to elaborate. Yeah, the Americans. Remember, th- this, this, com- or this, uh, this civil war ends in 1949. Can you tell me what major uh, incident occurs in 1950 in that general region of the world? No guess? Uh, I'll Korea? give you a hint. Yeah, yeah. Korea. I was going to say, I'll give you a hint. It's still ongoing, technically. Okay, well, let me let me try another qu- question for you. I'll, I'll give you another one, another chance to redeem yourself. <sighs> Phew. What happened to Germany after World War II? It got split in two. Mm-hmm. Between? Between the Soviets and the, I guess... Western, Western powers, Western powers sure. yeah. it was actually split into four, um, but the uh, the Americans, the British, and the French, the French. Uh, combined all their parts uh, very, very shortly after. So I mean, it's, it, for all intents and purposes, purposes, yes, it was split in two. Korea, the exact same thing happened to Korea. It was split between Soviet forces and the American forces. And can you tell me where it was split? I'm guessing right along the North-South divide? Right along the 38th parallel, exactly where that line is today. In 1950, both the southern government and the northern governments were claiming to be the real, true governments of Korea. And the other ones were uh, propped up puppets of whichever power they were accusing of being propped up by, which is a very familiar refrain for Korea. And, you know, at at the risk of getting pulled into this whole Korea thing, which I'm not planning to do today, uh, what you're looking at is about three years of back and forth combat between North Korea and South Korea. Where, you know, Seoul changes hands, I believe, it's four different times. And at the end of all of it... I had no idea it was that many times. Yeah. At the end of it, it's going to end up exactly where it is when it started. But it's not just about Korea, right? The Korean War was never just about Korea. The Korean War is about communism and its place in the world, right? Because everyone's all amped up about next conflict. Right. East Germany fields of Poland, let's go there. Except it turns out that that conflict doesn't happen. There's these weird tense standoffs around Berlin, right? But then you, know, you get the, you know, the airlifts and all that stuff. My timeline might be a touch off for all of this stuff, but everything more or less settles into a extremely uneasy equilibrium there.
1: Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem like the local, local populace really has the stomach for what either side is kind of no, them on. They're tired. Not really in the same way that the North and South.
0: Mhm. Like the koreans or the or the chinese are right and it's not as though those populations aren't also tired but there's so much less stability there compared to what's brought by the direct rule of the soviet union or the direct rule of the uh, allied powers in germany um that it's it's not enough to keep it from decaying into into further conflict right in 1947 uh we get what's known as the truman doctrine out of the united states are you familiar with the truman doctrine roughly. In broad strokes, basically, it's just saying that the United States will not tolerate the spread of communism anywhere in the world in any form. So we're not going to be okay with just a little country here and there, you know, one of the small ones that we don't care about. Vietnam, no dice. Korea, no dice. Right. And Initially, I I actually went into this expecting to say that the Korean War is the first real practical application of the Truman Doctrine. That's actually not true. Uh, There were earlier conflicts in both Greece and Turkey in which varying degrees of socialist populist uprisings occurred that the the United States interfered in or or intervened in, I suppose is the correct terminology here. And which they were successful at preventing the spread of communism. So, going into Korea, they're already looking at this as a very successful world model, except for China. Right. So, yeah, we stopped Greece from going Soviet, hooray. Oh no, 1949, all of China is now a a, a communist nation. You have, between Russia and China, over a billion people living under communism. Uh, You have the vast majority of the, the, the land, just physical square kilometers in Asia. Ruled by communists, this looks like a disaster. So this is very much like this far no further. And what's more, in nineteen forty nine, those two groups are very much in sync. The communist government in Russia and in China are on the same page. So Korea starts talking about not only going uh, socialist in the north, which they already had under the influence of, you know, the the, the leaders in North Korea are basically people who fought in. Uh, China against uh, the Japanese uh, came back to Korea to help liberate it as the Japanese were being driven out at the end of the war. Right. Kim Il Sung is that the right one? I yeah, so. yeah, Kim yeah. Il Sung. All these Kims. Uh, I, I get them confused sometimes. Kim Il Sung had actually fought with uh, communist forces, China, against the Japanese, or at least that's the official story. There, things are very murky, murky around that man. Right, um, but he's a he's a died-in-the-wool Maoist communist. So when they start attacking into the south of Korea, intending to take over the entire peninsula and make it communist, the United States goes to the UN and asks for intervention, brand new UN. And they're saying, this is the entire point of this. The south is being unfairly attacked by the north, the north are the aggressors. Give us this UN Security Council joint task force to go into Korea and protect it from the communists. In the grand scheme of things, Korea is not big. Korea at the time was not a wealthy nation; it was an extremely poor nation. In fact, it's fairly recent that Korea has become as wealthy as it is.
1: Right, right. and lived under a dictatorship for much of that time.
0: Oh yes, absolutely. No, it's it's very understandable why it was in the situation it was. But my my point being, this is the purest version of the Truman Doctrine. Right, the United States is used to intervening in the in the North and South uh, Americas. Uh, when there are some sort of interests that might kind of affect it, right? Korea is on the other side of the world. Korea is not wealthy. Korea is not uh, an ally. It's it's been controlled by other powers for uh, a very long it's time, not particularly rich in resources. It's not. No, it's it's, <laughs> sea it's Cucumbers, it's they, they you know, I This is 1945. They weren't white. There's a lot of things. They're saying like maybe we just shouldn't care about Korea but that's not what the Truman Doctrine says. We are going to apply the Truman Doctrine and stick by it. And they do; they go in there. There is a joint force. There, you know, the, the the Korean War is the last, um, you know, declared warfare for a lot of Western countries, like officially declared war, right? Um, under traditional uh, laws, uh, you know, I, I have I have family members who uh, were signed up to to fight in the Korean War here in Canada, and it's kind of like the only reason we're there is because the UN. Was rallied by the U.S. to go in there and fight communism, right? That's that's the point of it. But it's in this context of this like specter of communism, right? 1949, the 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 USSR had developed the bomb. Uh oh, now we're in trouble. Now both sides have it. You know, uh, 1949, China had gone communist. The Soviet Union had rallied a lot of the resources in Eastern Europe and solidified its hold over that over that area right all those countries that were liberated by soviet uh troops had now gone socialist and were under soviet influence right it was they were extremely worried about it and that's where korea falls in all of this mao kind of teams up with stalin to a certain extent in sending uh what they would have termed volunteer forces they're just on vacation they're supporting their communist comrades what they do on foreign soil, we can hardly be held accountable for. They're doing this with their own <laughs> They're <field>. on
1: holiday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's very much like a, no, we're not supporting the communists in North Korea, but also, yeah, we definitely are. That's kind of where all of this stuff falls in the context of, of China, is like, yeah, they're absolutely supporting the war there. And, you know, no, it doesn't result in an absolute communist victory, but also North Korea is from their perspective preserved and this is good in sort of a, a fraternity sense in that we've supported international workers and it's good in a geopolitical well, you've, sense you've managed to beat back the world yeah superpower, in, in right? a practical military sense we took on the entire west and we won under or weird circumstances didn't lose well didn't lose yeah i mean i think it's th- kind of hard to argue that they didn't Communist China is a year old when this this conflict starts, which is amazing. It's unreal. It's absolutely remarkable However, what all of this means and and this is to circle back to a question that you asked me 10 12 minutes ago I'm guessing is what does this have to do with taiwan? Which is everything because now there are american patrol ships in that area constantly Gotcha, and they are not going to (laughs) <laughs> they will not tolerate further spread of communi- communism, and it doesn't matter that Taiwan is tiny, and it doesn't matter that the, the island is basically um, uh, irrelevant on a geopolitical standpoint. It doesn't matter to the United States. It's now a symbol of republicanism in Asia, and it is standing in opposition to communist forces. And I'm sorry, but if you take a couple of boats across that channel and try to, to uh, invade Formosa, you will have the United States brought down upon you.
1: And I imagine at this point in time, there's also a massive military base in Okinawa.
0: The American military machine has been rolling at full output for years now. And that is no small thing. That is a thing that in the Second World War, the, the Japanese significantly underestimated to their detriment. American industry is, is, is it's no joke. It's, it is a force to be reckoned with. And they haven't just turned that off. It didn't just kind of get to, you know, August of 1945 and they went, well, we don't need all these ships anymore. They need to do something with them. And the defense of Asia from the communists is a pretty good use. Right. So that's why they can't go into Taiwan. Okay. Yeah. I did want to talk a little bit about what Mao's ideas for running a society and a government actually look like, because it's not quite the same as we've talked about in the past with communism. And the other thing about communism is I, I think a lot of people mistake it for a political system, which it's not it's a it's a it's an economic system that has some political implications, but you know a, a lot of people will say, not always, but but some people will say like well the, the the polar opposite to communism is democracy. No, that's not how that works. The polar opposite to communism is capitalism. It's the economy, not the government, right? Yeah, so we should talk a little bit about what Mao saw this newly founded communist China looking like. Fundamentally, his theories are basically Leninism, Marxism, um, with a couple of big differences. Um, Number one, we already talked about the proletariat, including the peasantry, right? Number two, Marxism has this theory of like a a class awakening. Basically this idea that one day, like the workers will like wake up to the fact that they're being exploited. And that's what brings around this change, right? They'll band together. They'll realize their own collective power and they'll rise up against the owners of the means of production, et cetera, et cetera. Mao basically went, well, that all sounds well and good, but we're talking about a very prescriptive route to getting to communism. Communism is just a way of an economy working where the, you know, who profits from what and who benefits from what has been shuffled around a little bit. Um, We can just make that happen. Like we can just do that. It doesn't require a class awakening. Um, We can just force it to happen. Basically. Also, here's the thing. Uh, I like the idea of communism. There's a Republican government that needs to be overthrown. We need to prove ourselves to be independent of the West that has caused us a century of humiliation. Um, A good way of being independent is not buying into their capitalist system. Let's just set up communism. It's just self sufficiency, right? And, and yeah, it basically. And and he's seeing it as sort of more compatible with Chinese society, even though he's not necessarily the biggest proponent proponent of Confucian thought. But he's going like, I think we can just make this work. Like, basically, we're just teaching a whole new class of people a political consciousness, and we just start from the beginning as the way that the economy works is communism. So there we go. We solved it. We've solved the issue that has plagued, Good job, everybody. has plagued revolutionaries for basically a century in Europe at this point. How do you get to communism? Well, you just do it. You just make them. And this isn't necessarily going to sound completely distinct from Stalinism, for example. Except that, at least in Russia, there's sort of, even like the pretense that this is the will of the workers. Like, there's still that, like, shroud of it. This right pageantry, I suppose. Mao's not even necessarily all that interested in all of that. He's not interested in the uh, the the illusion of it. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't care that the, the inevitability of history uh, ends in socialism and all that other Marxist theory that is essential to Marxism, but isn't really all that important for communism, which are two separate things. So he basically, yeah, well, let's stop exploiting people materially and uh, set up a collective society where a small number of people aren't exploiting everybody else uh, monetarily. How does that sound to everybody? Good, good. Let's do it. And he's going to be taking bits and pieces from uh, the way that Russia is currently set up at that point in time. He's going to be taking bits and pieces from theorists that he's read. From the impression that I've got, he didn't even necessarily understand Marx all that terribly well. To be fair, translations are really hard to get, but he's far more interested at this point in time in the practicalities of the system than necessarily than the theory. Yeah. But, but in a, in a roundabout way, he wants to rework theory in a way that will work for a practical China because he sees China as being sufficiently different from the West that classically Marxist communism won't work necessarily.
1: Okay.
0: And part of that is maybe true. Part of that is this attempt to kind of set himself apart from the West, uh, to shed that kind of, uh, um, Imperialist history, but he's he's very much looking for a, a way to make this work for China, and that means peasant collectives. That means a very top-down enforcement of uh, communism rather than a ground-up one. And I can
1: understand that because you know you you talk about Russia as a single country, and it's it's hard to do that. But you know, there's still a significant portion of the population that's living in urbanized areas. In a modern Russia, um, so they've they've got you know, I imagine that at at this point, like the proportionality of urban to rural from Russia would be very different. It's
0: it's a little bit China. different. It's a little bit different, but at least at the time of the uh, revolution in 1917, Russia was still quite rural, uh, significantly more so than most of uh, of Europe. And but like, yes, post-World by
1: World War II,
0: by by post World War II, yes, but only because of a very forced. Uh, urbanization on the part of the Bolsheviks. You have people uh, forcibly removed from their homes and moved to urban centers where they're working in Factories. foundries and things yeah. like that. So so yes. Um, so is this the kind of stuff that Mao's looking at as well? Well, not necessarily because, because he doesn't like... Um, he, he has a very romantic idea of the peasant revolutionary. The yeah. And t- to the point where he basically um, excludes the worker from his sort of ideological framework of communism, he doesn't see them as significant enough in the population. And in in China, that's probably true. But in Russia, it was also probably true, at least at the beginning. They Um, just changed it to suit. Well, they changed Russia to suit Marxism, whereas Mao is looking to change Marxism to suit... Russia. China. Uh, Uh, Yes, China. uh, Guy, I'm getting mixed up in this topic a lot, too. Don't worry about it. What country are we talking about? Yeah, no kidding. Anyways, Mao had this great quote at one point, which is that political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. And he was more than willing to force people into this new system. He was looking to... Take aspects of both like Marxist communism, where he wants to maintain like national integrity. Um, which is a very na- uh, Marxist idea, uh, and combining it with that anarcho communism, where he's looking to sort of uh, involve small collectives of peasants in sort of the remaking of society. The uh, rejection not of just like who the ruling class are, but what the government is, and what the cultural institutions are, and what the education is, and the banking system, what what currency is. All of that stuff is very like anarcho communist. Let's strip society right down to its core and rebuild from there, because you can't just, you know, somebody like Bakunin would say, you can't just take proletariat and put them in uh, the position that the bourgeoisie formerly occupied and expect them to remain proletariat. That won't change the system. That will change those proletariat into bourgeoisie, and they will just perpetuate the same system over and over again. You have to tear it down and start from scratch. And Mao truly believed that. He really did think that was the way to go, and so he saw class struggle as being something that intensifies conviction of the bourgeoisie in their own ideology, not something that lessens it. Okay. He's, he's saying like when the revolution comes, people aren't going to be like, yeah, you're right, I guess I'm communist now. No, they're going to double down harder, and that revolution is an ongoing process and a violent process, and he was willing to embrace that, and he was willing to impose that on the population. That was the price he was willing to pay it's kind of hardcore right but here we are tell you what why don't we take a break there collect ourselves a little bit and when we come back we're going to start looking at some of the ways that the new communist government puts all of this into practice and the effects on the chinese people Hey, I just wanted to jump in really quick and mention something that I had originally intended to say while recording with Gary and just sort of forgot in and among everything else. Um, Some of this Marxism stuff, it gets pretty technical, pretty theoretical, and I know it gets a little bit difficult to understand. Uh, If you're feeling like um, either you're a little bit lost, first of all, my apologies, um, or if you just like to lo- know a little bit more about it, uh, I'd like to recommend Mike Duncan's fantastic podcast, uh, Revolution, specifically episode 10.3 called The Three Pillars of Marxism. He's in the middle of doing the Russian Revolution right now. Obviously, Marxism is really important to that. And this episode is 30 minutes long, and it's probably the best primer I have ever heard on uh, the history and theory of marxism specific, specifically and communism in general um throughout years and years of history so yeah i guess a little bit of uh, extracurricular assignment on that one uh, I, I i do strongly recommend going in and listening to the whole podcast but if you can only listen to one check that one out i i think it really helps when dealing with topics like this so that's all let's uh let's get right back to it <laughs> Back on HI101 here with Gary Hallman. Hello. And we've been talking uh, Mao's political theory, at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Exciting stuff.
1: It is exciting. It's, it's interesting to see just how hardcore he is about switching around what everybody else is doing to a distinctly Chinese model. Hmm. And, you know, understanding that for this to work over such a large area with so many people, it needs to be forced upon people.
0: Yeah, Mao was um, remarkably cavalier with the lives of his uh, citizens. We're we're going to be talking about a lot of deaths coming up. I'll, I, I'm not going to. But how do you go through
1: forty years of the most awful, gruesome, mm-hmm. terrible atrocities to ever happen, and you know not come out on the
0: other side of that completely desensitized? So it's it's wild. I mean, there's there's some. You know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a. a Man-made famine coming up very shortly, and when you get to something like that, there's sort of some discussion on how aware top leadership was of what exactly was happening, and we can get more into the details there. But like, there's some, there's at least a, a touch of plausible deniability that maybe they didn't know quite how bad it was, even if they did know that things were bad. There are there are statements that Mao makes about the lives of Chinese people. At various points in his career, that are just shocking. It's just kind of off-putting. Like when when people are worried about the the Soviet Union, um, when when things kind of fall apart later uh, between China and the Soviet Union, he's basically going like, "Yeah, so they have the atomic bomb, so let them bomb us. What are we get? We can afford to lose people. if We've got people in spades. It's the thing that China has the most of. Let them kill a bunch of people. Like, can you can you imagine any other leader coming forward and just saying like?" Come nuke us. See if I care. One comes to mind. Well, yeah. Um, But (laughs) Stalin. Oh, Germans have superior weaponry? No problem. I've got 20 million Russians. Right? It's, 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 well, I mean, and he's, he's by far the leader that Mao is the most similar to. But Stalin's numbers are rookie numbers when it comes to Mao's numbers. Right. They're, they're, they're not even going to come close. Mao kills so many people. But, but like I said, it's, it's this cat, it's this. It's this not this uncaringness about it. There's a point later on, again, where where people are basically being bullied for uh, bullied. I I make it sound like it's some sort of school thing. They're being harassed for anti-revolutionary sentiments or behaviors or statements or even suspicions to the point where they're killing themselves. And Mao is going like, well, let them kill themselves. Don't don't if somebody's going to commit suicide, don't don't prevent them. We don't need them as a part of our new society. Yeah, that's that's exactly what he's getting at. Well, if they don't want to participate, fine. Don't make them. You just weed out the people you didn't want anyways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. Like even, even somebody like Stalin, you get sort of a, at least he knows that the messaging is supposed to look somewhat
1: reasonable. But you kind of wonder, like you see all these things happening and there's no repercussions for anybody else doing it. And, 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 you know, history has a way of coming around in circles. So it's interesting to just see, you know, from a political sense, if you see other people doing things on the world stage and there's no repercussions yeah. and they got exactly what they want politically, wow. Well, why not do the same thing? Well,
0: the, the, the strange thing about Mao in particular too, is the fact that he's both the revolutionary and the ruler in the equation. Right. Right. Like, if you look at Russia, you're kind of, I mean, obviously this isn't accurate, but essentially you have Lenin, the revolutionary, and then Stalin, the the enforcer, right? He at least
1: played some amount of lip service and platitudes, yeah. at least at the beginning.
0: Yes, correct. But what I'm saying is, like, Lenin is the one that made it happen, right. like the actual, like, transition. And then Stalin is, like, a child of this transition, a follower of it, and then he comes in and, like, implements... The harsh practicalities of what leninism in general meant for russia right you'll get similar things in i'm trying to think of other examples like che Guevara and fidel castro right where yeah fidel is a is a revolutionary but like che was a revolutionary that's what he did was go around when a revolution was done he just went somewhere else and started another one sometimes he had multiple going at the time but he wasn't really interested in the in the aftermath right right mao is doing both and I think it shows why so many other places you have those two separate things happening. Anyways, we're we're talking in, in big kind of general senses. Let's let's get down to it a little bit. I want to start by talking about uh, what's known as the Great Leap Forward. Once the you know the, the Korean War is finished, and once the civil war is finished and all of this, there's kind of this look at Mao to see like, okay, well now what? Like October 1st? 1949, yeah, we are a new country. We've, you know, been founded as the the People's Republic of China. Now what? What does that mean? Like what comes next? And the answer, for Mao at least, is: well, the main inequality in China today is unequal land distribution. So that's what I'm going to start with. We are going to Repossess land from the landlords and the wealthy, and we are going to redistribute it to the landless peasants. And here's the thing. Mao's not wrong. Land inequality in China is rampant at this point in time. He saw it as not only like a a Western issue, but like a feudal issue. He saw it as a vestige of the imperialist system.
1: So I imagine a pretty popular first policy for the vast majority of Chinese there right are, out the gate.
0: There are families who have never owned land in their entire lives being told, "Go ahead, this is yours now. This is yours now." That no good landlord, run him out of town. He wasn't doing anything good. What's he doing? He's a leech on society. He's just taking your money uh, from land that you're working. You're doing the work. Why don't you get the money? You're working the land. You're you're caring for the land. Why isn't it yours? And people went, "Hey, yeah." And they started killing landlords by the thousands. It was a massacre i'm not joking every village in china had at least one landlord uh symbolically executed in the town square every village not every city every village it's a lot of people the estimates are widely varied in these kind of popular killings that happen specifically against large landowners in between 1947 and 1952, I've seen estimates anywhere between 200,000 and 2 million landlords killed. Oof. Uh, if you extend that number from... Uh, to the range of 1947 to 1976, I saw numbers as high as 13 million landlords killed. I get where they're coming from. There is some pent-up anger here. Maybe going straight to execution isn't necessarily the best way of going.
1: So I imagine at this point, too, there's... This is the beginning of some like pretty
0: big wealth migration. Yes, it is. But the one thing I want to kind of not not move off of just yet when it comes to the, the landlord killings is there's something really important about these killings to Mao, which is that he's not sending soldiers out to do these executions. It's extremely important to him that the peasants do the killing. Right. It's they're being jumped in right they they are being they're being made complicit in the act of revolution there's blood on their hands now this belongs to them now they understand the gravity of what they're going through but also what the benefit is it is it is this it's this wildly brutal wildly effective thing it's just this one thing kill all the landlords that's it and in that one phrase you are communicating to hundreds of millions of people what exactly communism means for them because they're being given permission to do this thing they've probably wanted to do their entire lives. Which I'm sure the
1: vast majority of these people are basically just subsistence farmers, right?
0: Yes. So I mean, this is huge ramifications for them. After the redistribution by 1952, middling peasants who make up 90% of the Chinese population hold 90% of the land. This is potentially the fairest land distribution in human history. It worked. The costs are astronomical, but it worked. Right. That's, that's Mao in like a nutshell. This is, this is untenable. This is, not, this is not the way to do things. This is not civil. This is not reasonable. This is not moral. Millions of people died. But he ends up at a place where it's kind of like, okay... I, well, it's I, I distinctly get distinctly Mao, right? It's the whole it. idea
1: of like, we don't need a tribunal. We don't need to redistribute. Just go kill the landlord. It's well, like, he achieved his just go
0: do it. Yeah. He achieved his end. But again, like the cost of this is again, making all of China complicit in this revolutionary act. Now I say, I say like, this is something that all these people wanted to do. Like every single person actually wanted to literally murder their landlords. And that's not true. Of course that's not true. But you get this mob mentality going, you get the tacit endorsement of the state, you get Do you want to be seen an as the implied, guy who is not on board? Yeah, with what are you? A guy? friend of the landlords? Yeah, exactly. Um you get into this weird spot where it's like, no, I don't want to kill somebody, but I also don't want to not be involved. And it's like it's this really strange, coercive, implied threat that goes behind all of it, right? So again, there's there's no when I say things like it worked and it was effective, there's no um, admiration from me here. This is this is a, a, an absolutely brutal act. It's it's almost more just like surprise that it worked. Like, what do you what do you mean that actually achieved your goal? That's bizarre to me. Mm-hmm. But I think it, as as you said, cuts to the heart of of Mao in that he had this idea of like, well, the theory is that we just do this collectively, so let's just do it collectively theory is there shouldn't be any more landlords anymore so let's just get rid of all the landlords no problem what's the issue um next next item yeah basically and this this success quote unquote in in this first act is is going to have a massive uh, effect on his kind of personal assessment of his abilities as a leader in a lot of ways he looks at this as he has extremely good judgment yes here's the thing about mao he didn't he really did not in, in general, his ideas are not going to go this well. Um, and again, I'm using well in a very specific context. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, so in the, in the early 50s kind of thing, there are campaigns against counter-revolutionaries. Mao has this constant idea that there are kind of unnamed, unspecified counter-revolutionaries hiding amongst the population. Spoken like a true counter-revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I agree. But the interesting thing about this initiative is that with the landlords... There's a clear target. It's the landlords. With the counter-revolutionaries, there's this unspecified kind of shadowy actors within society, which sounds a lot to me like a witch hunt. And what happens when you have witch hunts?
1: Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of lists at this point. It's like, here's what you should be looking for, and this is how you can identify a counter-revolutionary.
0: If you see something, say something, right? Yeah. Is what it comes down to. And what happens when you have witch hunts is...
1: Yeah, my neighbor's an asshole. He's a counter-revolutionary. Yeah,
0: exactly. What's more, Mao put a number on this one. He did some mental mental math. In quotations. uh Uh-huh. And came up with a number of about 0.1% of the population is probably counter-revolutionaries. Sure. That's logical. There are are steps that go into this. We don't need to dignify it with an explanation. But guess how many people he was looking to have taken care of? 0.1% of the population. That's crazy. And if you can't find counter-revolutionaries, well, as you said, my neighbor. Yep. Heard him say some awfully Republican sounding things the other day. It's, 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 a, it's a bad scene. You're pretty seeing, sure he's got a cousin in Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That would be enough. That would absolutely be enough. Th- this is enough, again, unspecified numbers. But this initiative alone, anywhere between 700,000 uh, and 2 million people killed. It's just, it's so many people for nothing. There's very, very light uh, uh, evidence on any of these. One of the most common tactics of killing these people... its This is all extrajudicial, ju- by the way. Of course. This is not, you know, turn them into the authorities and they'll be giving a, given a proper trial and a, and a uh, chance to defend themselves. These people are tortured. They're executed. Driving to suicide is actually a very common tactic. Um, you just harass the people until they can't take it anymore and throw themselves off a building. It was so bad at one point during a great leap forward that in portions of shanghai uh people wouldn't walk next to high-rise buildings it's too much of a risk that's crazy yeah so not not going great now again mao's trying to like Apply all of these ideas that he has about communism to China and to the Chinese people, and these ideas are really uh, centralized on peasants doing things themselves and uh, decentralization, like this very like anarcho-communist decentralization. When Stalin wanted to kickstart the, the economy of the Soviet Union, he, as we talked about, centralized a whole bunch of people and built these giant foundries where you know massive uh, industrial production went into place, right? Well, Mao thought that sounded an awful lot like uh, a Western way of doing things. And he went, well, how would a a decentralized peasant class make steel? Because making steel is a marker of industrialization and therefore we should be making steel. It doesn't matter if necessarily there's a need for the steel or if there's a demand for the steel or if we can sell the steel anywhere. But it's a marker. Right. Like that's one of those things where if you're going like, well, what's this country like? What's their GDP like? How much steel do they put out in a year? Right. Like that's one of those like kind of world book type stats. Right. right? And so he decided, well, the way that a peasantry would go about producing steel in mass quantities is by having these like backyard furnaces where uh, small groups of like, say, five to 15 families could kind of congregate around these small furnaces where they could make iron. And I'm not sure if you know anything about steel production, Gary, but you can't make proper like, like proper steel beams in a little backyard furnace. No, it takes massive amounts of energy, yep. and it's just machinery. You need yeah. to roll it. You need to. There's there's masses of chemicals involved. Uh, what you can do in a backyard is make some very very poor quality pig iron. This is like, you ever been to like a ren fair? And there's that blacksmith guy there yep, making nails, making nails or whatever. This is about what he could do.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's about what he could do, (laughs) but that's, that fits into his like aesthetic, right? This is his ideal of like the peasants working together in these small groups and still staying peasants and not losing that peasant innocence, but still, you know, marching soldiers of the revolution, except none of this is good. All of it's bad. So, what do they end up doing with all of it? Not much. It's not used for anything. It's no good for anything. It sits just in heats. Yeah, yeah, but it looks good on the sheets. And Mao's happy because we're making steel. Okay. I got a question for you, Gary. If peasants are making steel, iron, but if peasants are making iron, uh, what are they not doing? Making food. Yeah, that's right. They're not making food on all of that land that they've just repurposed and aren't really using that much, right? This is an issue. This is this is planned economy going badly in a nutshell, right? So,
1: are there like quotas they have to meet,
0: or there's like repercussions? Yep, that sounds awful. But you gotta hit your targets. That's all there is to it. Yeah. So, so food's not really being grown as well as it could. It sounds a lot like feudalism, <laughs> kinda, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's not being grown super well, and and. The places that it is being grown, Mao has all these ideas, again, about things that like he just doesn't know how they work. For example, he wants to increase the agricultural output because less peasants are working on food. So you want each peasant who is working in agriculture to grow more, basically. Right. right, And agricultural production is down like 30%, basically. That's a lot. Yeah, it's down by a lot. So how do we grow more food on the same amount of land? Idea one. Plant all the seeds closer together. That way you can grow more food on the same land. Oh, God, no. Good idea, right? Oh. What happens when you do that? They all die. Yeah, they all choke each other out. Idea number two. Maybe the topsoil kind of depleted. You know where there's better uh, soil? Deeper down. No. So let's plow down like a meter, two meters in some cases. Get that good soil up at the top. That's the rich stuff. Except you know what's down there? Not topsoil. It's all gross silt and gravel and clay and it's not growing stuff oh no so their agricultural output output tanks it goes off a cliff and what's more they've been hoarding food for the past however long in all these uh these granaries but they're planning to sell those off so that they can make money into their planned economy so what all this results in in 1959 is warehouses full of food Peasants not allowed to access it. Agricultural production off a cliff, and both because of the number of people working and the quality of the agriculture happening, this is a recipe for disaster, right? The agriculture has all been collectivized over the source uh, over the course of the nineteen fifties. So everybody's not even on their own land, so they can't choose what to do with their own land. Okay. Uh, private property is officially abolished by nineteen fifty eight. That's kind of early into a communist cycle compared to what you would see in Russia necessarily. It's not a lot of time to kind of transition into a more communist system. Yeah, it's, it's a real disaster. In 1957, it's the 40th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, there's this big like meeting of all the communists of the world, basically. And uh, at this meeting, Khrushchev says that their plan is to uh, beat the United States in, in industrial production within 15 years uh, through peaceful competition. And Mao is so inspired by this speech, he's like, "We're gonna do the same before the UK. They're smaller, but we can hit that goal." And he just cranks all of the stuff that we've just been talking about up to eleven. 1959, uh, sorry, 1960. Drought hits. So you've got all this other stuff going on with the agriculture. Drought hits. I want to tell you about one other really good idea that Mao has. We're gonna do a, we're gonna do a Monty Python in the Holy Grail style. I'm gonna ask you for some very specific conclusions about some leading questions okay okay so what do you need to grow more food more seeds what keeps us from having more seeds birds birds good birds do keep us from having more seeds they eat the seeds on the ground uh especially sparrows okay sparrows are bad so, are rats who eat granaries? Yep. Right? Don't like those. Um, also, mosquitoes and flies cause disease, as do rats. So, all four of those are really bad. So, how do we get less sparrows? Large snakes, uh, lizards. No. But those are really hard to control. Cats. How do we guarantee that they're going to be killed? Poison them. No. Hand, them, hand the people guns and tell them to hunt them. Sparrows. For a bounty. Yep. Tiny sparrows. Yep. Guns. I. Hmm. Uh, you're hungry and desperate enough, and you want a bounty. You can shoot a sparrow.
1: All right. Yes.
0: They start killing sparrows on mass. What else do sparrows eat? Bugs, specifically locusts. Okay. What do locusts eat? Grain, crops. Crops. Uh-oh. Wait, no, this went terribly wrong. <laughs> they killed so many sparrows. It's it's known as the um. Uh, it's, it's just known as the Great Sparrow Campaign. They kill so many of these sparrows that it artificially induces a locust plague the likes of which China has never seen. In the exact same year, 1960, that they're having uh, complete drought. Their agricultural production is off a cliff, um, both due to manpower and to quality of the crops. So these little tiny piddly crops that they've barely managed to eke out of the are ground completely wiped out completely wiped out by locusts and they're still not opening their granaries what's more local uh, officials have a very strong incentive potentially mortal incentive uh, to report that the areas under their purview are doing very well thank you right so what do they do they, everything's fine it's great they over report production so not only are these places in famine but the people who might actually have power within the bureaucracy to go hey things are bad here we need help are incentivized to lie about needing help just to save their own skins and say yep growing exactly how much we said we were going to grow don't worry boss the official death toll on the great famine of 1959 to 1962 is 15 million deaths jesus the official the official toll numbers swing wildly uh, which should come as as no surprise. Um, I, I've seen estimates more like forty million overall through the Great Leap Forward, which stretches approximately from uh, nineteen fifty to um, nineteen sixty two. You're looking at over seventy million deaths, probably. We think because we don't have good records. Right. Most of which is through poor planning and through state-sponsored violence. I didn't even talk about the Hundred Flowers campaign. In an attempt at uh, uh, transparency between 1956 and 1959, government officials uh, claimed that they were welcoming, dissenting views as to how the government was proceeding with uh, leadership and any suggestions that people might have for improvement. And a lot of people came forward because they had issues with how things were being run. At first, things were going really well until some of the suggestions turned a little bit personal against Mao. As in, he doesn't seem to be doing a great job of leading. Maybe we should find somebody else. Then Mao took all those lists and used them as lists to go hunting people who needed re-education. Okay. Hundred Flowers campaign. Ideas sprouting in a field like a hundred flowers. They'll have very nice names.
1: So, I mean, at at this point, it sounds like Mao has complete authoritarian control of the entire state apparatus. Like, there is no... Like, is there any other centralized power that's kind of keeping him
0: in check at this point? or? I mean, you have to remember that China is a one-party state at this point, which means that basically if you want to work in government, you need to be a member of the Communist Party of China. Right. Mao is the head of the Communist Party of China, as well as the, as the head of state. He's gained this uh, position through just renown, you know, things like the Long March or, or seniority in the party. Uh, as well as his friendship with Stalin. Like there's all these things that have been going for him. He's developed what's commonly known as a cult of personality. There's very much a Mao is the leader, not the communist party is the leader, not the council uh, at the head of the communist party is the leader. It is Mao, Mao alone. You know, there's other things going on kind of internationally where Mao has really cracked down on dissent within the party. Not just, you know, not just like the hundred flowers campaign, but, um, you know, Stalin dies in 1953. And there's quite a bit of upset within the the, the Soviet Union in terms of how they're going to go forward. But it's pretty quiet to begin with. But it's fairly clear by 1956 or so that the party is planning to move in a different direction than Stalin was taking things. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons for this. One was the Stalin's own cult of personality; they were uninterested in making him into a deity, as it were. Um, Another would be, you know, the labor camps. There was a lot of the 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 leadership wanted to absolve themselves of that to some extent, and and, we're looking no one
1: person had enough political power to kind of install themselves in the same position that he did.
0: That's true as well, Um, and and. You know, there there were people who were probably able to make a go of it. Khrushchev was probably the most likely, even before he was put well, in place. And even a but, lot of
1: those guys, you know, had also legitimate reasons that they just didn't want to be that kind of political apparatus anymore.
0: It's 1954. Stalin is dead. And we don't know when the allies are coming from us. Do you want to be the leader when they find about the find out about the gulags? Yeah, right. So they disassembled a lot of the most egregious things that Stalin put in place and started moving more towards a model of like just the party in general as leader of, uh, Russia. Um, and this is a move away from like explicitly Stalinist doctrine. When I did a a topic on communism a long time ago, it was over three years ago. I think what I said around this time, and I got called out by listeners on this, uh, was that the Chinese communist party, uh, kind of moved away from the Soviet system in terms of ideology. And I, I was rightfully reminded that that's not really correct. If anything, um, Mao is a lot truer to Stalinism than the uh, the Russian, like the Soviet leadership. He saw them as traitors to Marxist-Leninists. They saw them as revisionists. Whereas the Soviet uh, leaders start calling Mao out on his own kind of authoritarian tendencies, his own cult of personality. There's a very famous uh speech it's a secret speech but it comes out later uh criticizing mao by name while criticizing the idea of a cult of personality as a leader of a communist society and tensions rise uh, dramatically between china and uh the soviet union there's other stuff going on here too where china's already kind of isolated enough by choice but they start losing the Soviet Union as an ally as well. They basically have no one to trade with now, right. which is a really precarious economic system. Uh, in 1956, there's the Hungarian Revolution, which is a, an interesting topic in and of itself. But it needs to be suppressed by Soviet military force, which casts doubt into Mao's mind about like the inevitability and the legitimacy of Marxist-Leninist rule. If we need to enforce this rule after the People's Party has been put in place through force, then is that a, a legitimate use of power. Does that mean that this really is the will of the people, or is this just another authoritarian regime? But his response to that, rather than being kind of like difficult self reflection, is to crack down on dissent within China. He's now worried about uprisings of the same sort within China, rather than taking a good hard look at whether or not authoritarianism is a correct choice for political power. Right. There's a lot of stuff happening in the late 50s. And in a lot of ways, what you see with the famine and the end of the Great Leap Forward is all of this spiraling out of control on Mao. He's not entirely sure where he stands ideologically. He's losing his grip from a power standpoint. He's losing allies. He uh, can't um, trade with the United States. He can't trade with the West. Now he can't trade with the Soviet Union. He basically has North Korea. <laughs> like, it's 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 the most precarious position he's ever been in, and. To finally get around to answering your your question a little more directly, no, he doesn't keep that up forever. There are dissenting voices within the Communist Party, and they're saying, "Look, Mao has mucked this up spectacularly. This like we we can't keep letting him call the shots. He's killed millions. He's killed tens of millions and of people. He must
1: be pretty old
0: at this point too. Um, getting getting older. He's getting older. Yeah, yeah. He'd be uh, in his sixties. You know, there, there's this there's this kind of like, well, do we? Kind of make him more or less a symbolic figurehead. Mm-hmm. Talk about transition. Senior right? statesman and what's not and whatnot, right? This moves us into what's known as the Cultural Revolution. You know, the economy is tanked. Uh, the deaths are large enough and well-known enough that they can't just close their eyes to it. As much as Mao is willing to sacrifice in the name of the cause, he's supposed to be protecting these people. Those deaths, the you know, these glorious revolutionary deaths that he's talking about, are in the name of class struggle, or they're in the name of uh, defending China in in um, military action. They're not.
1: But it's like any other authoritarian death, regime, right? Like your legitimacy depends on rice so in the bowl. Feed your citizens. Rice in the bowl and and you know some sort of protection of the nation state. And if you don't start fulfilling those things, then people think, well, don't have a say in who's in charge here. I am not in control of my own life. I'm not in control of what I'm doing. So, you know, things aren't going to work out well.
0: Successful revolutions often hinge on keeping basic promises. A lot of revolutions you'll find like very, very basic, like bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs tier items being on the successful revolutionaries talking points. Russian Revolution, famously peace, land and bread. That was the slogan of the Bolsheviks. People didn't care that they were communist. They cared that they would win the war, that they would end the famine, uh, and they would give land back to the peasants. Right? So if your slogan is based on things that simple, if your opponents have fallen to items like famine, and you yourself find yourself in the middle of a famine of your own creation... And you're more worried about reaching the
1: same you know, economic output as the UK. Yeah. Like different
0: wavelengths post-war UK by the way yeah let's keep that in mind not in a great position yeah so so there, there's a lot of talk within the party you know some people were kind of wondering whether Mao was fully aware of the extent of the the of the famine as we talked about a little bit earlier because you have those mis, uh, those misrepresented reports coming up in terms of agricultural production right so maybe he was just being fed reports that everything is fine
1: But he's still directly responsible for creating the political climate that would cause somebody to fear to tell the truth.
0: Of course. Yep. No, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. So, and and I would agree at that point, uh, quibbling over whether or not he knew that he was indirectly causing the deaths of 70 million people is somewhat irrelevant to the conversation around the fact that he caused the deaths of 70 million people. Right. But I didn't know isn't a great excuse at that point. It's his job to know. It's his job to lead his job it's hard to, to hide that many people dying well and he, he's not only the the leader of this country but he's also the founder of the ideology that the country is based on so what does that say right what does that say about the ideology I, the, it, you're right hiding all those bodies is is extremely hard i saw one account from an official that said something along the lines of um you know every every village you'd walk to there'd just be a hundred bodies uh laying in the streets um and this person was saying uh one, one of the you know one of my workers or someone who reports to me uh told me once that there were dogs eating the corpses but uh I told him that he was a liar because the people had eaten all their dogs long ago like that's the sort of stuff that's coming out of this famine it is apocalyptic in nature like i i there are there are charts out there of like lengths of famine versus like number of deaths and like th- there was one i was looking at i missed this famine on the chart it is such an outlier from other things that we think, you know, famine in Ethiopia, even the even the Irish uh, famine uh, of the 1840s, they, they paled in comparison to what we're talking about here. And it is fully manufactured. It was completely avoidable. So, yeah, there was discussion of g- taking him out of control. Some of his other duties, like the command of the army, were taken away, you know, to, to better allow him to blah, 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 whatever. It was taken away from him. Right. Um, you have other, uh, members of the, the council coming up in, in power at this point in time, notably, uh, Deng Xiaoping, Mm -hmm. uh, Lin Biao, who were basically suggesting like, you know, let's get him into like an entirely symbolic role. And then things start turning back the other way again. Mao has been spending all this time in the early sixties, trying to figure out how to basically make himself relevant again partially from like a very cynical, like I-can't-lose-power point of view, partially from like a, everything I've ever thought about this system that I've developed has turned out to be wrong kind of thing, right? So the conclusion that he comes to is notably an extremely external locus of control, which is very on brand for Mao, right? It's not his fault that this failed. Obviously, uh, the issue is that anti-communist dissidents are sabotaging china from within attempting to bring back around a capitalist system that's the only explanation otherwise it would work fine damn capitalist birds eating all the grain um and it's it's easy to make light of but it's kind of like i don't know it's one of those things where you think about say a scientist who's worked on a, a physics theory for his entire career and then five years from retirement, he gets a paper across his desk that he needs to review for a publication. And it just casts down everything part, he's ever yeah. done. And does that guy, does that guy support it? Does that guy kind of bury it? Cause he wants to stay relevant. Right. Right. Like there's this like sort of, there, there's this disconnect, right? Like there's this, 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 this dissonance there where it's like, c- could I be out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's he can't, he can't bring himself to admit that his his system might be that flawed, and so he comes to the conclusion that he must be there, there. must be sabotage from within because, like you pointed out earlier, that's what he would have done. Yeah, that's exactly what he would have done. If he, if the she was on the other foot, he starts in on what's known as the Cultural Revolution. He says, "We will never progress past this point if we don't completely purge these anti-communist elements from our culture." And this is where that whole uh, anarcho-communist tendency really comes into full effect where he's like, tear it all down. We're done with it. We have to get rid of our education system. We have to get rid of traditional religions. We have to get rid of our cultural institutions, get rid of all of them. Schools start just like shutting down at this point in time because they're worried about teaching the wrong theory. Um, there's this uh, anti-intellectual movement that comes around, right? Like it's very like, 1984. You have the destruction of monuments in these like hate ceremonies. You have people reporting on their neighbors for anti-revolutionary thought. You have like it's it's all very right. dystopian. In uh, 1966, he puts his wife Jiang Qing uh, in charge of essentially of remaking Chinese culture. They start burning the classics. She She's commissioned to, or she's put in charge of commissioning the series of like Chinese style operas that are going to like espouse revolutionary spirit and communist values. These are things that like when Nixon comes to visit in 1972 he's taken to one of these operas and he's like this is the most boring thing i've seen in my entire life <laughs> this sucks so bad but like it's not about necessarily the art it's about the 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 culture in a weaponized political sense right and this crazy thing happens at this point with which is the creation of what's known as the Red Guard and just to be clear the Red Guard is not the Uh, Red Army, right? Uh, The People's Liberation Army as it's known now. Uh, The Red Army is sort of this decentralized, like spontaneously developed student organization that begins in uh, various universities across China at this point that quickly shapes from like a we support Mao kind of thing into this paramilitary force with tacit endorsement from Mao himself. We're at a point in the revolution in 1968 where it's been 20 years. Mm -hmm. These university students have grown up under Mao. They've never known anything but Mao. Yeah, They've never known anything but Mao, and they believe in him wholeheartedly. This is the fruition of that cult of personality where it's like, yes, what Mao says goes. And it is to the point where there's just enough doubt introduced by this like anti-communist elements in society sort of line of thinking where it's kind of like, well, who can we trust and who can't we trust? You know, our neighbors, sure. Yeah. We'll keep an eye out for them. But Mm -hmm. what about members of the army? Are they communist enough? What about members of the government? Are they communist enough? What are we going to do about people we find who are not communist enough? And the answer is a process known as rustification. Rustification is a re-education process in which people are sent out to the country to learn revolutionary spirit from their idyllic peasant neighbors, because they've lost touch being in the cities, what it's truly like to be a, 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 an impoverished worker out in the field. So this is a work camp, basically, and you work there until you agree with communist ideals. But that's sort of the the general feeling behind
1: it yeah there's there's a really great account of one of these one of these camps by a canadian journalist named jan wong mm-hmm. yep. and uh i think it was called red china
0: blues yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I've, uh it, it's extremely good i i strongly recommend it
1: yeah it's it's a fantastic book and what a great look from you know a westerner who had fully drunk the kool-aid yeah and uh over time realized the flaws in the system, I suppose you there, could
0: say. There's another actually very good one uh, that I wanted to recommend uh, known as um, it's called Son of the Revolution. Yeah. Um, it's by Heng Liang and Judith Shapiro. Heng is uh, he, he grew up in China and his parents were subjected to some of this uh, 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 reeducation. And uh, the, the book is fascinating in that his parents before this violence i mean and i mean it started before the cultural revolution a lot of it was the hundred flowers campaign that that kind of did them in um a lot of this violence came from like they they were true believers they were like died in the wool communists they believed in the cause and they still got caught up in this mechanism of uh, not being enough yeah yeah and and you know eventually he he Escapes China, obviously, but it's it's a it's, it's an incredible firsthand account of what it's like to exist inside that that mechanism. It's just chewing people up and spitting them out. Anyways, let's go back to the Red Guard. Here's the issue: the, they they're not actually a government organization. They're not controlled by the military in any way. There's no government oversight. There's no command structure. This is the chess club run amok. It's just not anything. There's no. There's no actual mechanism by which the people in power can control the Red Guard, except for Mao, who can tell them to do whatever he wants. Right. And you have to understand the Red Guard is not a small thing. At its height, it may have had as many as 11 million members across China, all ready to die for Mao. So he's found his way to insert himself back in relevancy. They're waiting for some sort of acknowledgement from Mao, right? And this acknowledgement finally comes in 1966 at a rally in Tiananmen Square, where he comes out in his like classic, like olive drab, like the the outfit, the Mao outfit, you know the one, yeah, wearing the red armband of the Red Guard, and he speaks to 800,000 of these Red Guard. And tells them that what they are doing is good and right. And in the spirit of the revolution. Because the military, that's just another form of of classist uh, uh, power from the top down, right? What they're doing is this grassroots, bottom-up, beautiful revolutionary work. And they should be proud of that. And then he directs the rest of the government, let them be. If they attack somebody, so be it. They probably deserved attacking. Hmm. So what what do you do? What do you do if you're the head of? What so if, what's the military doing at this point? They don't know because Lin Biao, who 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 basically runs the military at this point, is going. What what do we what do we do about this massive armed mob that you've just endorsed? And and you know Mao's going. Well, just no big deal. Leave them alone. Don't don't worry about it. And so they're like, well, can we at least protect like classified installations? Like they're working on a mil- uh, on a nuclear program right now. Can can we keep them from going in there? Can we protect your residents? Like, and Mao's like, well, yeah, sure. And like, I'll, you know, tells them like, don't, don't invade these places, but they inevitably do. And they clash with the PLA. And then it's like, well, what are the consequences of this going to be? And it's like, well, nothing. They're just acting in revolutionary spirit. And it's, it's mayhem. It's utter mayhem. And now you have these factions within the party who are going, Mao needs to be stopped. He's a menace. This is not how you run a country. And then there are other factions who are going, this is Maoism in its purest form, because remember that revolutionary is an ongoing struggle, right? You don't just stop having a revolution. You need to continue purifying the system. You need to continue purifying the, 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 the parties in power or else they will stagnate and they will become the new bourgeoisie. Right. This is the process. This is how it works. This is Maoism in action. Uh-oh. The uh, Red Guard moves primarily against what they call the Four Olds. Old customs, old habits, old culture, and old ideas. And this takes the form of things like, for example, defacing public monuments uh, that show pre-communist history. It involves uh, destroying uh, religious symbols. It involves tearing down temples. For example, the, the Confucian temple itself is actually... Attacked and uh, partially demolished by the Red Guard in this period, but it also takes the form of like very personal attacks. This is this is breaking into people's houses and finding their ancestor shrines and defacing them type stuff. And you know, we we especially this this topic have been talking very Han centric about Chinese culture. This is taking place across all of China. This is you know attacks on Tibetan. Uh, uh, religion and culture. This is similar actions in Manchuria. This is, I mean, the Uyghurs are being um, targeted even more than most Han Chinese are. So we're talking about imams being dragged out and tortured in the streets. We're talking about people's Korans being burned or defaced, all in the name of cultural revolution. Right. We need to eliminate all of these old things in order to build this new, glorious Chinese culture. Mayhem utter ma'am. and again like many things with Mao like you can kind of see how we get to that spot like you can follow the dots even though where we are is just like totally crazy absolutely beyond like we can't like there's nothing about this that can be endorsed in any way shape or form you can see how Mao's mind worked to get there
1: oh yeah you can absolutely see how he's looking at this and doing the mental gymnastics to say oh this is exactly what I was talking about
0: He's playing the Red Guard off as though they're no, re- no real big deal. It's a student organization. In the first two months in Beijing alone, nearly 2,000 people are killed by the Red Guard. There's no oversight. There's no judicial process. Nothing. Within the leadership of the Communist Party, there's this shift towards radicalism. We need to get in line with Mao. All these sort of uh, moderating forces that had been at work over the early 60s in response to the famine... They start getting pulled out. The man who's working as head of state at this point in time, because remember Mao had been removed from that position, uh, Liu Xiaokui, uh, Liu Xiaoxi, sorry, he's removed and sent off for re education. So is Deng Xiaoping. Right. By 1960, like by the end of 1967, kind of thing, all of the Red Guard is kind of falling prey to infighting. It's very divided it's not centralized right like communist yeah i yeah i'm struggling to think of a like it's 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 much more similar to like modern like anarchist groups where it's like oh like the anarchists sent a bunch of protesters to this protest to smash windows when it's like you know there's not like a facebook group right like that's not how they work an anarchist collective yeah yeah, yeah. it's just not how it works. It's like a bunch of people just pulling on black masks and doing whatever they feel like. And there's a lot of different factions within it that disagree heavily with each other. Same thing with the Red Guard. Their actual aims and means are extremely varied. You have Red Guards who realize like, oh, yeah, the reason I'm in university is because like my family's actually kind of well off and I don't really want to send them for re-education. And so, like, you get moderating factors in there like that, and then that faction isn't thought of as moderate enough, or uh, as radical enough, and then they're accused for education and this whole thing, right? right? Finally, the leadership is able, you know, when you get these conflicts with the PLA, like, direct military conflicts with the PLA, that it's like, this is a liability. Like, we have to get rid of these guys. And finally, Mao agrees, like, okay, I'm going to stop endorsing the Red Guards. Uh, We can try and... Enforce some order in the streets, basically. And by the summer of 68 or so, the movement is more or less over. So it's very much like a flash in the pan, like year, year and a half kind of thing. But they did a lot of damage in that time. In order to sort of break the whole thing up, most of the students involved in the Red Guard eventually get sent for rustification themselves, basically as a way to disperse them from people that they know and to make sure that this never happens again. Right. Mao reportedly announced the failure of the movement with a tear in his eye. He 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 genuinely believed in the Red Guard. He loved the Red Guard because the, the Red Guard loved him like unconditionally. It's cult-like. It
1: sounds kind of like the final nail in the coffin of his political theology a little
0: bit. Um there there's definitely this realization that like this is this may be grand but it's not practical. Right. He's forced into a couple of concessions in terms of, like, how the government is going to be organized from here on out. Lin Biao is made official second in command. Um, Ideologically speaking, he's fairly in line with what Mao has been saying up to this point. But he also has a strong military background, like he's in charge of the PLA. And this is seen as a good thing by the rest of the communist leaders that it's like, okay, well, he's a moderating force. Uh, for stability and order within the party. And once Mao can't rule anymore, which is looking more and more likely, then... You have a second option. Yeah, and it's actually written into the Constitution that he's second in command, basically, that he's going to be the successor. The Cultural Revolution is declared, like, finished in 1969. We kind of put a bit later finish point, just because it works a little bit better, but this whole, like, re-education of all of society is... Done ish by the end of the 60s, which puts China in a weird spot, globally speaking. You know, in 1969, they gain uh, or they finally test a a functional nuclear device. So now they're a nuclear power. But China is officially opposed to the US, the USSR. Uh, Military tensions get really high with the Soviets. There's a seven month undeclared sort of border skirmish kind of thing. Shots are definitely exchanged. People die. Yeah. Borders will end up where they were all along, but there's some, you know, some islands here and there that are traded. It's it's not uh, a terribly well-known conflict, but, you know, th- that's the point that Soviet, or Sino-Soviet relations are at there, right? They're, they're not friends. And the U.S. considers that a good thing. They don't want united communism in the world, right? Yeah. Mao really didn't like the role of the military in the government, the more prominent role. He was very troubled by it, but... It kind of goes against his philosophy of having
1: the peasants be the primary mm-hmm. directing force in society.
0: Yeah. But with war, potential war with the USSR on the horizon, kind of important. And then his buddy Lin Biao starts acting a little out of character. Here's the official account of what happens. Lin sends some troops to the Soviet border to reinforce uh, a weak point without clearing it with Mao first. It's an emergency, but the slight is noted. Mao is fairly upset with Lin, and Lin realizes that he's never really going to have the the amount of power that uh, he would prefer while Mao is still alive, so he begins plotting a coup along with his sons some other conspirators. And there are several kind of botched assassination attempts against Mao in 1971. Fearing exposure, he uh, Lin boards a, a flight to the USSR along with his family to seek asylum uh, in September of 1971. And the plane runs out of fuel and crashes somewhere over Mongolia. Everyone's killed. Here's some questions about that. Okay. Was there actually a plot? The answer is most likely yes. Did Lin know about it? Uncertain. Okay. It may have been other people were planning around him. doesn't mean that he didn't, but the certainty of that is kind of in question. Did those assassination attempts take place? I mean, maybe. Again, unsure. Did Lin's plane really run out of fuel over Mongolia? Or did something else happen to it? I have no answer for you on that one. Okay. Why was he fleeing to the USSR? They are in the middle of a military conflict with the USSR. Yeah. Why not Taiwan? Why not Japan? Or Korea? So
1: is this something that Mao fabricated to kind of reinstall his primacy?
0: These aren't necessarily rhetorical questions on my part. I don't know. It all seems awfully suspicious, though, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does look like one of those sort of you know, Russian suicide with two bullets to the back of the head type. Deals. Yeah. Right. It, it feels because what you end up with in, in some assassination attempts by authoritarian figures is you're not trying to make it look good. You're just, you're specifically trying to make it very obvious. It's quite ice pick in the chest, uh-huh. but, uh, yeah. But, the, the point, the point isn't the point isn't to cover it up. The point is to say we just brazenly murdered a man, told a very weak story to cover it up, and no one can do anything about it. That's the purpose of those assassinations. Anyways, something to think on. So that kind of puts everybody in line. Kind of the opposite. Mao becomes very depressed after this incident. Oh, really? So well, he was very close to Lin. Remember, he's been written into the constitution as second in command and like Mao's closest comrade. Right.
1: So this isn't necessarily something
0: that Mao was aware of. Yeah, not initially. I mean, he found out afterwards. Obviously, he was he was brought up to speed on all of this. But like, it was kind of his deepest, darkest fears, right? It's anti-communist elements within his own circle. Right. Um. Mao was also very unwell in this point of his at this point in his life. He'd been a chronic chain smoker his entire adult life. Drank heavily. Ate richly. Had lung disease. Heart disease. Uh, in the last few years of his life, was dealing with what was probably, it, it was something neurodegenerative, uh, either Parkinson's or ALS. Some people have suggested both. Some nasty stuff. And a lot of people attribute his last couple of years of withdrawal uh, from society to... Just dealing with basic health issues? Yeah, but but also, but also people point to this betrayal by Lynn. Um, and I don't know. Sometimes things can be two things at the same time, yep. but I'm not sure. Be that as it may, he really kind of pulled back from the whole ruling thing. Deng was back, though. Uh, he completed his re-education in only four years, which it's fast, and was back in the good books. Deng was well-known for being very good at all the things that Mao had been bad at, specifically economic issues. He, he's He's well-known for creating... Uh, functioning economic systems. You're right. And that's what he's going to be uh, known for throughout the 80s in China, right? He's he's the one that... the economic turnaround. Yeah, he he's the one that orchestrates the majority of that. I mean, with help, obviously, but he's the one steering the ship. And he's given more control over the government after 1971, 1972. There is substantial opposition to Deng uh, in the form of What's known as the Gang of Four. And this is a political group led by Jiang Qing, Mao's wife. Okay. Remember, she had been made head of, like, culture in 1966. She still held that position. She's still a fairly senior person within the... Well, and Mao's wife. That's hard to mess with. Um, We don't need to get in the rest of the Gang of Four. It's three other people that agreed with her. But they were running this very, like, pure Maoist propaganda machine through China state media which they had full control over. While at the same time, the military is trying to gain some semblance of order within the structures of the country, and Deng is trying to get a handle on the economic uh, situation, neither of which works well under this pure Maoist, like, utopian uh, peasant's paradise, right? And so you have this weird standoff at the highest echelons of power between all these people who are have been described as like more Maoist than Mao in some ways. They want this like peasants paradise thing because they don't actually have to run it. They just have to talk about it in the state media. Right. They get to write operas about it, but they hold real power too. And this is an issue, right? Mao's health just continues to deteriorate over the 70s. This is the the era when Nixon comes and visits 1972, orchestrated by Henry Kissinger, another just terrible, man. Yeah. And this was beneficial for the United States because they see it as splitting China further away from the USSR. It's beneficial for China because they're actually gaining a global trading partner out of the deal. They get to eventually kind of come out
1: of the global dark ages
0: a little bit. Yeah. Some of the shots from this, uh, from this tour are the first even photographs people have seen in the West out of China in nearly two decades, you ever heard that like trope of like kids are starving in China kind of thing. Like eat your, eat your beans. Yeah. Yeah. Christmas story. I think it shows up in at one point, but that's coming out of this era where like, all we really know about China are these like whispers of tens of millions of people starving to death because of this communist regime. Like more stuff was coming out of the USSR than China before this visit. But Mao meets with uh, Nixon like once on the visit. He's unwell, very unwell. Uh, the rest is handled by the premier at the point at that point in time. His health keeps going down. There's this whole like sort of like eccentric persona that people kind of attribute to what's essentially a very sick old man who's, you know, losing his facilities. Um, you know, he'd call for audiences with people all times the day and night, and it's like, oh it's just Mao. it's how he does. No, he was unwell. Um right. but the party couldn't really necessarily admit that, right? That's how these things work in authoritarian regimes. Cult of personalities. He finally passes away uh, the 9th of September, 1976, aged 82. Uh, He had three major heart attacks before he died. Yikes. Um, Yeah. Uh, They, to their credit, did announce it the same day that he passed away. He passed away just uh, just after midnight. Uh, It was announced that afternoon that he had died. And his body what laid. The,
1: what was the reaction like?
0: Oh god, his body laid in state for a week, and over a million people came to visit in one week to physically see his body laying in state. And we're not talking about like foreign dignitaries. Like nobody, nobody foreign came to see him. This isn't like you know when when um, well uh, uh, Bush Senior died a couple of years ago, and you get the world leaders from all around the world are there at the at the at the. Uh, funeral right that's not this this is people showing up to pay their last respects to mao he was beloved by the people that that's that's that cult of personality right there are people who knew a lot more about what was going on or had been affected directly that had more complex feelings about him obviously but like was there a prevailing sense of like relief within the party i think yes There was a quote, I'm paraphrasing, I I can't remember who it was that said this, but it was someone within the party said something along the lines of like, if Mao had died in 1956, he would have been immortal. And if he had died in 1966, he still would have been considered a great man. But unfortunately, he died in 1976. I think there was that sense of like, okay, well, now we can get down to the business of running a country properly. There is like a final hurrah from the Gang of Four, who, uh, weirdly enough, like, issued a lot of like letters and notes that were like things that Mao said on his deathbed that are of like very questionable uh origin they were arrested by October 6th and that was basically the end of the 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 extreme reactionary or sorry the, the extreme revolutionary uh position within Chinese leadership there was a show trial maybe five years later they were all sent off never to be heard from again not really Deng's leadership transitions the country towards uh, what's known as a socialist market economy, sort of a blended economy rather than uh, the planned economy. And he focused on proper industrial uh, development, not just sort of a theoretical utopian one. Really turns the country around over the next couple of decades. Um, I'm not really going to go any further past that, obviously. I think we're, we're well into the category of... We're done with Modern. the revolution. Yeah, Modernist. Mao's legacy within the, you know, at least publicly facing after this becomes what's known as a 70% right, 30% wrong model. The, uh, the leadership eventually comes around and basically said, listen, Mao had some things wrong. Um, the foundation of our country... Depends on him. He's uh, he's um, indispensable in that regard. Most of what he said was good. But there's some things that we need to tweak as we go along. He didn't know everything. And that's about as close to criticism as you're really going to get publicly. Right. But it's really transitioned to a much more Soviet model of like the party leads things. There's a premier and, and uh, you know, things like that. But the, it's it's the party, not the person. Well, up, in, up until recently. Well, but but even then, I, I mean, I don't want to get into that. But even, even then, there is at least a veneer of like, this is a, this is a group decision, even if there's one person speaking it, um, anyways, we, we, we can, we can leave that for today, but yeah, I think that's kind of where I want to leave things with the communist revolution in in China. I think we, we, like we covered a lot of ground and this is not straightforward or simple stuff. Even, even the idea of communism, like I think if I was to go back and redo any single HI 101 topic, it would probably be communism. I'd like to do it a little bit more justice, because it's hard.
1: It's just so wildly divergent.
0: yeah, it's it's hard, and it it touches on so many aspects, and it's just it's it's a little bit difficult to pin down. So rolling that in with a, a country that is is famously private about a lot of these things and is famously poorly taught uh, in the West was uh, a a bit of a struggle. So I know there's a lot of things that we kind of glossed over or or things that people will be. Wondering why I didn't touch on, and mainly it's time. We're already at the end of three parts rather than our usual two, and they're long parts. But yeah, that's that's the Chinese Revolution. All right, what a wild journey! I'd love to hear what you think of it. You know what?
1: I I really I really feel like it was interesting to see. You know, it, it, it provides a lot of context for modern China and mm-hmm. modern Chinese thinking, mm-hmm. and. I think from a lot of Western perspectives, people look at a lot of the decisions that modern China makes and, and they don't understand. Yeah. They they don't, uh, they're kind of looking at it through a very ethnocentric view mm-hmm. where if you look back over their own history of Western imperialistic, basically adventurism mm-hmm. and how that basically set them up for a hundred years of misery and uh, turned them from being, you know, the middle kingdom into chopped up different pieces and failed governments and, and whatnot.
0: Um, oh, so was straight warlordism like for yeah, absolutely. a long time there. Yeah.
1: You know, you can understand why the population as a whole has a much deeper tolerance for certain, certain things that Western societies might not.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it, there's some stuff I didn't get as much a chance to relate back from from this part too. Even the first one where we talked about sort of the the founding principles of the revolutionary, like the the Republican revolutionaries. You know, uh, the the whole idea of like you know nationalism and democracy being core values of uh, stated core values of China in the 20th century, and how that gets rolled into the way that China does communism, not just the, the how it does Republic, but how it does communism. you know we didn't talk as much about um, the unifying uh, efforts of the um, uh, the Chinese government. you know the, we we talked a bit about the the standardized characters last time. I was actually a little bit early on that. That was more of a a, a communist effort than it was a Republican one. They're looking to have a way to basically level the playing field literacy wise among everyone in China. They're trying to create a unified, Chinese uh, nationality, right? That's where this whole burn everything down comes from. it's it's not just eradicating imperialism, it's also eradicating to some extent uh, diversity within China trying to not just level things from an economic standpoint but also a cultural standpoint. right. and that's all relatively consistent with what the Chinese people have wanted since those 1911, Revolutions, which is why it's important to include all of those, right? You can't just jump into Mao and go, well, hang on, what, how did China, why was China like this in 1949, right? Like, you can't start there. That's how, that's how all of this came about. You can't understand that without understanding that history of uh, imperialism and of colonialism and, you know, crony capitalism. Right, uh, it, it's it's all essential to understanding how all of this came about. This is this is where kill your landlords comes from, right? You don't shout kill your landlords without a century's worth of not just domestic landlords, but domestic landlords who are supported by international powers that you feel helpless against. And then all of a sudden, you're given the power to do something about it by a man who says, you know what, you are not powerless against this. All these all these ideas that you've had, all these feelings that you've had about how we're being treated unfairly, that's right. You, you're right.
1: But it also goes to show this, the extent to which the Chinese top brass is really ultimately held accountable by, or is at least vulnerable, mm-hmm. to mass uprisings, right? And even, even to this day, when you take 1.4 billion people and mm-hmm. you talk about even a small uprising,
0: you're talking on a scale that can cause massive, widespread unrest and and that's why you see the authoritarian actions that you do today again at at risk of getting too modern with it it's it's largely because they live in fear of how many people they are uh, in charge of they are very acutely aware of what a popular uprising can mean
1: the 70s were not that long ago in the the grand span of history and a lot of the people who are currently in charge Probably had you know we're growing up in the definitive era where may have known Deng, you know, the Red Guard were going around terrorizing people, and yeah. you know yeah. a lot of those guys were actually sent to
0: re-education camps. So may, I mean, may, may have fears. met Deng Xiaoping personally. Yeah. It's entirely possible. Like the the fear is is real and yeah. palpable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I, I mean that's also why you get such a focus on. Um, national pride and and uh you know uh, social harmony and all of these values that are are really strongly promoted by the the Chinese government today uh the the independence of china on the world stage those are all rooted in everything that we've talked about over these past three episodes they're rooted in that century of humiliation they're rooted in because every everything, everything we've talked about from, from, from the Boxer Rebellions, from, from the Opium Wars, up until the death of Mao and, and Deng's uh, transition to uh, a blended market economy, all of this is ways of trying to find China's way back to where they were before all of this started, right? Which is a, a, a serious world power exerting massive influence over a hemisphere of the world. And they, I think rightfully so in some ways, feel that that was stolen from them. And they're just reasserting what they see as rightfully theirs. And I think that's extremely important to remember anytime you look at any relations between China and the West. Because as you said, it's not forgotten about. It is not ancient history. This is very recent. This is personally recent for a lot of these people. And it informs everything that they do.
1: Right. Right well all in all that was
0: uh, quite the quite the journey Gary you nearly did me in with this one but I, I couldn't be more grateful that uh, we settled on this for a topic I I really enjoyed uh, researching this one putting it together chatting with you about it uh, it's been a it's been a, a very long and a very good time
1: well thank you and thanks for leading me through it
0: Mao's death in 1976 allowed China to begin transitioning away from his idyllic vision for the country into a more practical model that reasonably supported the management of a nation. Since then, China has grown as a world power that continues to remember its past, both good and bad, and today is the largest and most powerful communist nation on earth. Next time on HI101 won't be a proper episode. I want to check in on some meta-issues about the show and let you all know about some changes. Don't worry, I'm not ending it, just tweaking a few little schedule things. I'd get into it now, but this episode has gone on more than long enough, so I'll do my explaining elsewhere. That should be up sometime extremely soon. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash HI101podcast, on Twitter at HI101podcast, or by email at contact at HI101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections, I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Bleski, and this has been HI101.